0: Heavenly Father, we thank you again for John's Gospel and the time we've spent in it. This morning as we uh, hear Jesus speak of some extraordinarily weighty matters and as he reveals our hearts and the hearts of those we know, we ask please that you would teach us, that you would equip us to follow Jesus and that by your spirit you would change us to love and fear you and not man. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do they not believe? Why do they not believe? If you find yourself sharing the gospel with somebody, sharing this extraordinary news, breathtaking, breathtaking in its simplicity, put your trust in Jesus and eternity is yours. Breathtaking in its beauty, the creator of the universe has reached out to you. Breathtaking in its explanatory power. Why is the world the way it is? We reach out with a message that brings hope in the darkest of despair. We reach out with a message that speaks of an assured eternity with God in heaven. We speak of a spirit given that transforms lives, and we know that transformation. We speak of a community, imperfect though we are, of people who are gathered selflessly to serve. We speak a gospel of burdens lifted. Why do they not believe? We have a message that is reliable, that is evidenced, that is sensible. Why? Do they not believe? Just this week I was speaking with somebody in my Bible study group who was telling me about uh, that person's cousin. And time and again they've shared this gospel, they've brought and, and, and tried to bring the best parts of it to bear and also the warnings and, and time and again the person just goes, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't care, I'm smarter than you, I'm better thought out than you, I'm more capable than you, I don't want anything to do with this God business that you keep going. Why do they not believe? You may well experience that frustration in your own life, as the people that you pray for and agonise over and share the gospel with time and time again, still they don't change. Now we're going to get to the answer to that question in this passage, and it's not a pretty answer. It's not pretty at all, because it is very damning of our hearts and our desires We'll get there by the end. We've got some hard work to do before we get there. We're going to cover the whole of chapter 5. It's a long reading. We're going to have to work hard at it. But thankfully, it's all summarised for us in one verse. So you can learn this whole chapter just by learning one verse, and that is verse 18. Now, if you've closed your Bible, you'll want it open again, page 1032 in the Pew Bibles, John chapter 5. We're going to work through this passage. But verse 18 summarises the three movements, if you like, in the passage. Let me read it. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Here's the first movement. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, right? Jesus working on the Sabbath. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. There's the second part. God, the father, and Jesus, the son. And the third part is, well, is Jesus making himself equal with God? Is he doing that most un-Australian of things and just talking himself up? Or is there others? Now in your bulletin you'll find that outline. I encourage you to take notes. It'll help you uh, think and work through things and things to come back to later on. So let's start at the start. Let's start with Jesus and the Sabbath. And the chapter begins normally enough, as Andrew so aptly demonstrated for us, right? You've got Jerusalem, you've got some sick people and you've got Jesus. We kind of know what comes next, right? I mean, this is normal. This is ordinary. But I think, in fact, this is a very unusual story. There's a whole bunch of things about it that are strange. Now, I've got six, seven, actually. I've added another one. I've got at least seven. You might see more. Here's number one. Firstly, it's unusual because there's a whole bunch of sick people there. Verse three, here a great number of disabled people used to lie. But Jesus only deals with one. He talks to one person, he heals that one person, and then he takes off. What about the rest? It's unusual, secondly, because there's no verse 4. I don't know if you noticed that in the Pew Bible, right? Verse 3, here a great number of disabled people used to lie. Verse 5, one who was there Ben. No, that's unusual, mostly because of textual variants, and some texts have got this and other texts don't have it, and so they've gone that way, but they've left the odd numbering so that you can see what's going on there. And there's footnote you can read it later if you want. That's by the by. Third unusual thing. Third unusual thing is the strange question that Jesus asks of this man. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, right? Jesus walks up to this man who's been paralysed for nearly 40 years, and he says to him, do you want to get well? Well of course he does. What do you expect? The answer to do you want to get well? No, I want to bucket KFC. I mean what's he? Very unusual. I mean it's 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 strange, it's quirky. Fourthly but man has a, a mystical, almost seemingly magical view of the healing properties of this pool. Verse 7, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. or I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me, right? I mean, the footnote has this kind of the first word person in when the water gets stirred, gets healed. It's almost this magical belief that Jesus just leaves it unchecked. Yep, okay, carry right along. Fifth strange thing, and perhaps the strangest of them all, there is no faith. In this story. There's no faith before the miracle. Usually Jesus sees their faith and heals them. There's none of that. There's no faith after the miracle, right? You've been healed. Now learn about, no, there's just no faith. In fact, the guy didn't even know who Jesus was, astonishingly, right? Verse 13, the man who had healed had no idea who it was. Can't have faith in someone you don't know. Sixth strange thing is Jesus' very enigmatic command to this man at the end. Verse 14, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Seventh unusual thing, the passage ends with this man just going and dobbing Jesus in. Well, the man went away, told the Jews it was Jesus who'd made him well. The end. It's a very unusual miracle and it's very unhelpful to the preacher. What am I supposed to do with that? I can't preach about having faith because there's no faith here. I can't tell you you've got to have faith in Jesus and. I can't preach about Jesus' compassion because he healed one guy and left. What about the rest? I can't even preach about that question, right? Do you want to get well? Because, I mean, of course you want to get well. Well, There's the end of the sermon, right? Let's go home. It's warm and dry. I mean, it's... What's the point of this passage? Well, the point comes in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Because Jesus was doing these things, I take it this is one story to show us what Jesus was in the habit of doing. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews wanted to kill him. Now, we don't get it because we don't really get the Sabbath. Now we could do a whole sermon on the Sabbath. Maybe we will at some point. But so the Sabbath wasn't a day off. It wasn't an individual just, I'm going to have a cruisy day today. Right? Friday is my day off. I try hard uh, to, to do as little work as possible, although I have two small children. So, uh, I mean, you know, the only work you get. Uh, if I can go surfing, brilliant. If I can do a bit of resting, excellent. If I have some family time, well, that's, it's, my, it's my individual day to rest. Now, that wasn't the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a communal day. It was a day where you gathered together to remember your identity, the people of God, to remember the God who had saved you, the God who rested after creation. So to break the Sabbath, it wasn't, oh, you've had a really bad day off, you're going to be tired this week. Well, That that wasn't the problem with breaking the Sabbath. Breaking the Sabbath was to say to that community, I'm not a part of you. I'm not a part of the people of God. Do you know what the penalty was in the Old Testament for breaking the Sabbath? got stoned to death. That's, that's how serious an issue it was. For to break the Sabbath was to turn your back upon the people of God and to turn your back upon God himself. And the Pharisees, these Jews just trying to keep the law. Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, and so they're trying to kill him. Now, you've got you to ignore for a moment their lack of compassion. right? The bloke who hasn't walked in 40 years has just stood up and thought, brilliant, I can walk home, right? I haven't been able to do that all my life, and he picks up his stretcher and off he goes, and they go, oh, no, no, stretch up, put it down, can't carry that. right?" I mean, ignore their lack of compassion for a moment. They're just trying to keep the law. Jesus, you're breaking the Sabbath. And the leaves ask us the question of why? Why is Jesus breaking the Sabbath? Well, Jesus kind of goes on to make it worse in their eyes. Jesus said to them in verse 17, I'm working because my father is working. My father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Now, Jesus gives lots of answers as to why he works on the Sabbath in other places, right? Once he says he is Lord of the Sabbath. Another time he says that the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Another time he says that the Sabbath is for doing good on. But here his answer is, Dad's at work, and so I'm at work too. And the Jews understand what he means. He's not saying, Joseph is busy doing some wood turning right now, and so I've got to be at work too. He's not talking about that dad they get that he is calling God his father. God is at work, and so I am at work too. He's saying to them, when it comes to the question of the Sabbath, I don't identify with you, the people of God. I identify with God, making himself equal with God. His sons, sons grow up to be like their fathers. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I don't have sons. I've got two girls. So I, they've been spared, but I've got a dad. And you kind of go through life going, really? I'm going to be like that, but what can you do? Apparently, I sound a lot like my dad, right? Edwina has called my phone before and dad has answered and she was convinced that she had a conversation with me for the better part of five minutes and then hung up and then called five minutes later to go, what? It was dad, right? You, you just, sons grow like their father. They look like them. They sound like them. They act like them. Got a mate uh, who used to take the. Whenever he had to buy for his son, his little 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 boy, this kind of old, a little mini wheelie bin, because every week he'd take the bins out, and the son would go, "I want to do that too," and so they would go walking along behind him with his little mini wheelie bin. Sons grow like their fathers. Sons learn their business from their fathers. they, they take over. They learn how to do the work of their father. Uh, Bing Lee's is, in my mind, the classic example. You know Bing Lee? and you know the, the catchy tune? What's the tune? I like Bing Lee. Okay. It's really racist because the original was, I like Chinese, and they kind of took it, and went, yeah, I like Bing Lee, yeah, but hey, it's them doing it, so it's all good. And uh, Bing Lee was the grandfather in the family. He started the business kind of 1950s, selling white goods uh, in, in around Fairfield to migrants, and he started the business with his son, Ken, and he taught Ken the business the values, the way we do the work, how we run meetings, how we treat our dealers, how we treat our customers. We treat them like family. Now, he passed away in 1987. Ken takes over the business, and Ken's son, Lionel, once again starts to learn the family business. Lionel recounts he, he attended his very first board meeting at the age of 10. Right. Mum dressed him up in a suit, sent him off with dad to the company. Dad shoved him under the table, said, Do your homework, shut up and listen. Right? And here's the bold run. And they had, and he's just ever since followed in his father's footsteps. He's learnt the business from his father. Ken died in 2007. Lionel took over, and what did he say? I'm gonna run the business like my dad. Same values, same way of doing business. As the father, so the Son. Jesus has learnt the business of the Father. What is the business of God? What is God in the business of doing? Oh, if you've ever thought about that question, I suspect that if we analyzed our prayers and our thoughts, most of us would end up with the answer God is in the business of just making life, life happy for me, perhaps. God is in the business oh He sends rain when we need it, and sometimes he doesn't when we don't, and that's kind of God's out there. What is God? In the business of. What is his work? Well, Jesus says God is in the business of doing two things. God is in the business of giving life and God is in the business of judging. And because Jesus is the son of the father, that is the business he is in. there, verse 21. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Is it any wonder that he's healing on the Sabbath? The business of God is to bring life. And that is what Jesus is doing. How could he not? There are babies born on the Sabbath. God is giving life on the Sabbath. Jesus gives life. But Jesus also judges, verse 22. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And so Jesus will say to that man that he healed at the end of the chapter, at the end of that passage, sorry, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. It's a friendly warning from the judge. Stop sinning for judgment is coming and I will judge. And so Jesus can make this extraordinary claim. I tell you the truth, verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. How can Jesus say that? Because he is in the business of the Father. The Father has taught him, has shown him, has given to him life that he might give to others. But Jesus can also say, verse 27, he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. And so every one of us, you, me, these Jews, this man who was healed, every other person who has ever lived will front up to this judge, Jesus. The Jews understood that. They got that Jesus was calling God his own father Making himself equal with God. Not the same as, so that God the Father and God the Son are the same person, but equal, equal in deity, equal in power, equal in the business that they're on about. Now, is Jesus just talking himself up. You've been in a conversation with someone, and, and they're just constantly talking. to me, oh, I'm, And you, you, well, it doesn't matter what the topic is that you raise; immediately you know they're going to be, like, "Oh, well, let me tell you about me, and I'm, I'm, I'm better at that than you." Right? It doesn't matter what it is; I'm better. Is that what you, it's very un-Australian? We don't like it. We're going to, we want to cut them down. Is that all he's doing? Because if it is Jesus talking himself up, then why bother listening to him? I, I could say his words, right? I, the Father sent me. I'm in the business of giving life and judging. And you're sitting there thinking, <laughs> yeah, whatever. right? Because it's just me saying it. There's nothing to back up what I'm saying. And Jesus knows that, verse 31, if I testify about myself, my testament is not valid. Fair call. It's just hot air if it's just me speaking. But, Jesus says, there are at least three witnesses who testify to me. And these witnesses, the Jews knew, and you and I know as well. Unless if you've been coming the last few weeks in John, we've already met them. So the first witness, Jesus says, is John the Baptist. Verse 33, you sent to John and he testified to the truth. He testified to me. He told you who I am. I don't need, Jesus says in verse 34, I don't need human testimony. I I don't need a person to tell you about me. But you seem to like him. right? You went to him. You listened to him, for a little while at least. So listen to him. He told you who I am. Well, John the Baptist, he's not really the main game, you see, because Jesus says, I have an even greater weakness in verse 36. God. You want someone to back up my claim? God. Is a, test, is a witness to me. And he's a witness in two ways. Firstly, the works that I'm doing. How can I heal these people? How can I do these miracles? How can I turn water into wine and do all the signs that I do and have the knowledge of the Samaritan woman? How can I do all of this if not from God? How can I continue doing the work that I'm going to do, ultimately to die on the cross and be raised to new life, if not from God? And if I'm doing this from God, then that is witness that my words are true. But God also testifies through scripture. Verse 37, the Father sent me, testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice or heard his sin, his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you don't believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life, and yet these are the scriptures that testify about me, says Jesus. And notice he's talking to these people who knew their Bible. The Old Testament part of it, they knew it really well, and they thought that they'd find eternal life there, and they were right. They just kind of missed it when Jesus came, and he turned out to be the eternal life. You ever thought much about prophecy? Of, uh, this week, uh, uh, as I've been doing with the small groups, the Bible study groups, visiting a bunch of them, and I asked a group of people, uh, why are you a Christian? Right, and then a whole lot of different answers for whatever reasons people said. And I was speaking later on with a guy, and I why are you a Christian? I asked him, and he said, well, because of prophecy, obviously. Oh, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Well, there are somewhere between, depends on how you count them, 300 and 450 prophecies that Jesus meets. And those prophecies were made kind of 600 years back to a couple of thousand years before Jesus. Can you imagine today making a prophecy about a religious leader a thousand years from now, where he will be born, the circumstances of his birth, his life, how he will die, and in fact that he he will die by a means of execution that doesn't exist yet. Can Can you... it's unfathomable. I looked up a guy uh, who did a bit of statistics about this. I thought it would be interesting to look up. And, uh, and he calculated the probability of just eight of the prophecies coming true. Okay, So, so there's, there's kind of three to four hundred. He picked just eight. And uh, he got a group of university students to do the maths and they, they, they calculated it. He then gave it to another professor to do the maths as well to make sure that, that they were kind of working out alright. right. They used the most conservative values possibly to get kind of the, the worst result, if I can put it that way. They sent it off to somebody else to peer review what they'd done, right? And come back, yep, OK, that's good maths. You guys have done all right, statistics. This is what they worked out. For, just, for somebody to meet just those eight prophecies, it were, the odds were, one... In 10 to the power of 15. So that's a one followed by 15 zeros, right? A million is one followed by six zeros. This is one followed by 15. Let me illustrate. I mean, numbers don't mean very much. Let me let me um, let me make a little bit more graphic. Imagine we take uh, 10 fifty-cent coins and we mark one of them and we put them in a bag and you've got to draw blindly one out and pick the marked one. Yeah, you've got pretty good odds, right? One in 10. You, you, you might make a bet on that, maybe, maybe not, if you're a gambling person, which you shouldn't be. But, uh, so you put your hand in right and you get one, one in ten, you pull the coin. That, that's not bad odds. Now imagine we took those, that same 50 cent coin and we covered New South Wales in 50 cent coins. Okay? All of New South Wales is just 50 cent coins to the height of a metre. And one of them is marked you ask a blind person to pick one coin up and it has to be that one. And that's just eight of the 400 or so prophecies. How can scripture speak of anybody but this man? And they knew it and yet they didn't believe Even Moses, there's a third witness, even Moses spoke of me, Jesus says. Your greatest, your dearest, the most magnificent prophet you say you ever had, he spoke about me. So why did they not believe? They had Jesus right there doing miracles in front of their face. Have you ever spoken to someone who said, oh, well, if Jesus would only appear? You ever had that guy? I had a few of them mostly at uni. People would say to me, oh, well, that's all well and good, but but if Jesus appears in front of me right now and does something extraordinary, then I'll believe. Here it was. Here were the Jews. Here is Jesus. What more do you want? But they didn't believe. Why? Well, the answer is very, very damning. Verse 40, Jesus begins, you refuse to come to me. The answer is very simple. They chose not to believe. And why did they choose that? Verse 44, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? Why do they not believe? Because they love looking good in front of people more than looking good in front of God. Love the glory of man rather than the glory of God. We want people to think good of us, even more than we want God to think good of us. Well, they don't want Jesus. They wanted human praise. They wanted to be the centre. They wanted to be in control, to be exalted, to be made much of. We love being somebody. Isn't that right? Every single one of us. We love it when people accept us and welcome us and praise us and build us up. When it's all about me and my name. And yet Jesus came in verse 43, a Messiah who came in someone else's name. He didn't come to glorify himself. If he had, that would have been brilliant for us because it's an example. If you follow Jesus, it's going to be all about glorifying yourself. Instead, it's an example of humility and obedience. And submission, to be a Christian, is to let go of self and to love the praise that comes from God more than the praise that comes from men. Why do they not believe? They don't want to. Because they love looking good before people and they really don't care about looking good before God. Now, what do we do? What do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with that understanding of the people around us, perhaps that understanding of your own heart? Now, I want to say to you for a moment, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you know that, you know that's true of yourself, then can I say that what you really need is for those desires to be transformed. It's no surprise that John started back in chapter 3 by saying, if you want eternal life, you've got to be born again. You've got to be transformed. You've got to be changed. You've got to, you need a new heart. You need to be taught to love God more than yourself, more than other people. That's breathtaking in its simplicity, and yet it is so profound. And it begins by asking God, God, would would you please give me a new heart? Would you please teach me the things that I need to learn so that I can believe in Jesus, so that I can receive the life he offers instead of facing him for the judgment he will bring? What do Christians do with this knowledge? What do we do with the knowledge that Jesus has given us that people will not believe in him because they love the praise of man more than the praise of God? Because they choose not to believe. Well, it must, it must drive us to prayer. It must. If their choice is not to believe, it kind of doesn't matter how much stuff I can teach them if they continue to choose not to believe. And so do you pray? Do you pray earnestly? Do you pray constantly that Jesus would give life? When was the last time you prayed that somebody would come to know Jesus? I hope it was recently. And I hope it wasn't just recently, but it was a lot of times recently. And if not, then we need to repent. And we need to fall on our knees before our God and we need to pray and keep praying and keep praying. But I tell you what, this also cuts us to the heart, doesn't it? Because how tempting is it to forget about the praise that comes from God in the face of the temptation to pursue the praise that comes from men? without with our doctrine with our beliefs without our practice with our lifestyle right you're standing around the water cooler at work and human sexuality comes up again well it's just it's just easier to, to just let it let it pass not talk right I'll fit in that way I'll be okay I won't stand out they won't think ill of me to call people out on stealing on lying on adultery on the things that are harmful to them to say that God has a right way of living and a wrong way how much easier is it to just I I'm concerned for what they think of me more than I'm concerned for what he thinks of me. It's that way in our practice, in our life. It's easier just to swear at work than to not swear because if I don't swear, I stand out like a sore thumb. Right? If I just go with the boys, it's all good. I fit in to look at what they're looking. Can you imagine the passing porn around and I go, no thanks, I don't look at that. The boys are going down to the pub for a drink. I know I'm going to get in trouble if I do, but if I say no, I'm going to look like... We love the praise that comes from them more than the praise that comes from our God. And so can I encourage you? Can I exhort you? Live to the praise of your Father and live that he might say of you, well done, good and faithful servant. As you entrust yourself to Jesus, as you believe upon him, that gives life as your heart is changed so that you live to hear those words from God and not from people. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this word. We we are sorry. We're sorry for our own hearts That so often, in so many ways, we find ourselves slipping back into the old ways of loving praise from people around us and not caring about praise from you. Please change our hearts. Please give us the life that Jesus brings such that we would live for those words from you. Well done, good and faithful servant. And Father, give us such love for the lost that we will pour ourselves out on our knees before you, that you might do that same work in them. In Jesus. Amen.